Well, good morning, Bellwether Church, and Happy New Year. Um, for anyone who I have not had the chance to meet, my name is Cale Williams, um, and I have the privilege of serving as the ministry associate here on staff. Um, and if you are new here, I just want to say welcome. Thank you for worshiping with us. We are so glad that you are here. Um, and we'd love to invite you to fill out that Connect card right in front of you on the seat in front of you. Um, or um, we'd also invite you to download our Church Center app, um, which we have a card out there for, or any of our members could help you find that. Um, but we are currently in the middle of our series on the letter uh, from Paul to the church in Philippi. Um, in the past three weeks, we've kind of slowed down the pace and really focused in on verses 5 through 11, um, which is where Paul quotes for us a hymn or a creed that the early church would have said during their time of worship to affirm a few things. So first to affirm the deity, uh, which is the, the divi divinity of God, as well as the humanity of Christ, Christ's death and his resurrection, as well as his exaltation as Lord. Um, they would have done this to remind the church of the God that we worship and how the God who we worship shapes who we are as followers of Christ. And this week, we're going to move forward through this letter at chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Um, so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to read. Um, and the words will also be here on the screen. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for how your word tells us how you have loved your people. God, thank you for how your word tells us of your character and your perfection, God. Lord, we come before you with fear and trembling to hear from our Heavenly Father. Lord, thank you for this church and the people that are here. Lord, prepare their hearts to hear your word. And God, prepare my heart to speak truth found in your word. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So now before we dive fully into this next passage of Scripture, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel that Paul has declared and affirmed right before this in verses 5 through 11. That Jesus Christ, eternal, existent God, clothed himself in human flesh and died in the place of sinners for the sake of God's glory and for the salvation of God's people. Let's look at what the creed says right after affirming this truth about Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The creed here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us what God's therefore is in response to Christ's obedience, which is eternal exaltation of Christ, who serves as our prophet, priest, and king. Because of Christ's obedience on the cross, therefore he has been exalted. Now as we transition into verses 12, Paul tells us the Christians, therefore, which is our proper response to Christ's. Theologian J. Alec Motyer says it this way, God's therefore, in verse 9, is matched by the Christian's therefore, in verse 12. And that, in a nutshell, is what this passage is about. Just as God assessed and then reacted to the worth of his son's life of obedience in 9-11, through 11, so the Christian must ponder the example of Christ and determine upon a worthy response. In our passage this week, we are looking at what the Christians, our response to this beautiful truth of the gospel should be. But, as the Apostle Paul argues in Romans 3, we respond to this not to work for our salvation, because those who are in Christ are already saved by his atoning blood through faith alone. But out of gratitude and awe for the God who became man and set the example for us, do we strive for obedience. So church, I want to invite you over the next few minutes to ponder this mystery and the appropriate response along with me. So starting again at verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We currently live in what I would describe as a meme culture. Um, in our cultural moment, anything and everything is within the bounds to be made fun of. Our leaders, our government, our jobs, and yes, even holy things like scripture, the people of God, and even God himself, we make light of easily. And we are all guilty of this. And I do think that there are some good things that can come from this, such as some things being critiqued that have never been critiqued before for the sake of humbling. Um, but I also believe that this has led to extremely unhealthy cynicism in many people and a total lack of understanding of the concept of reverence. We serve a God that deserves to be reared and should never be taken lightly. He is perfectly holy, powerful, all-knowing, sovereign, loving, and just, which means he will punish all evil. And this should lead us to fear and trembling. The ancient term for this that Paul is pulling from is the fear of the Lord. So look with me really quick at, what, at some of the examples from the Old Testament that, uh, about the fear of the Lord. So let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality or taking bribes. Second Chronicles 19. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Job 28, 28. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalm 19, 9. And the term, the fear of the Lord, is explicitly translated that way 14 times in the book of Proverbs alone. 
This is an extremely important concept for the people of God. It is always associated with goodness and wisdom and purity and justice. And Paul here is reminding God's people of this ancient concept, which is that obedience only comes from a right understanding and reverence of who God is. We cannot have the kingdom without the king. We cannot have moral ethics or wisdom without the proper understanding of who God is. God is the creator, the sustainer, the judge of all things, who also chose to humble himself for the sake of his glory and his people. The proper response this demands of us is a place of fear and trembling and gratitude. If you want to live a better life, or to use a more Christianese term, a godly life, you must start with understanding who God is, not start with thinking that you know what you should do. And friends, growing deeper in your understanding of God will certainly lead you to fear and trembling. But it will also lead to comfort because we know that he is just, but that he took the just punishment that we deserved upon himself because he loved us. Now that we've established what our posture should be, there are still a few questions that are raised by this passage. Paul says to work out your own salvation. And for those of us who are in Christ and those who are good Protestants, we know that Christ's finished work is what seals our salvation, not our work. So what is Paul saying here? The Greek word he uses implies the concept of bringing to completion. Paul is not so much talking about our justification, which is the moment of salvation when God imputes Christ's righteousness into the sinner so that we are in right relationship with him when we believe, but our sanctification, which is the lifelong process of walking with Jesus and becoming more like him. Sanctification is hard. And we all consistently have and will fail. But the next verse gives us hope in the daily slug of working out our salvation when Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Meaning that our work as believers comes from God, not our own strength. Our obedience to God is the response to his, the presence of his indwelling spirit. And our responses allow us through his power to be transformed more and more into having the mind of Christ, which Paul mentions in verse 5. There are three things that I want us to see about God's work in us through his spirit. The first thing is that God's work is effectual. This means that God's presence does not leave his people and his work never stops and it will never fail. Yes, there are seasons when we feel this much less in our heart of hearts, but as the Puritan prayer of the Valley of Vision says, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart. The valley is where your power is most revealed. It is often in these seasons that in the long run, we see God's effectiveness even more clearly. God is always at work in his creation and his people, and there is nothing that can stop the work that God is doing. Secondly, God's work will one day be fully complete. God promises us that when he returns, his work in human history will come to completion. We will never reach perfection on this side of heaven. But by the seal of the promise of the Holy Spirit, we know that his work will come in full completion 
and in us and in all of fallen creation. And then third, God's work is for his good pleasure. God's work in us is not based on anything that we possess, any skill he has blessed us with, or any innate goodness that you might believe that you have. God often chooses the meek, the humble, the lowly, and he always chooses the sinful. There is no way he couldn't to accomplish his purpose for his good pleasure. In the book of Deuteronomy, in one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture, he tells the people of Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples." But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. And the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This should both humble us and encourage us. We are humbled because we're reminded that we did not do anything to receive salvation in the presence of God's Spirit because we are good or because we are better than other people, but because God is good and because God is faithful, not us. This should do the opposite of stroke our egos. But we should be encouraged because we know that we will fail. We will fall into sin. We will hurt others, but God is faithful and our salvation is not based on our performance. We can rest in knowing that for those of us who are in Christ, we, can, uh, we are forgiven and we have a good Father who loves us despite. And in our weakness, His glory and His strength are more deeply revealed to a dark and lost world. And this leads us to the next section of our passage where Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The work of God in us will lead the people of God to look different than the rest of humanity. It's interesting to me how Paul chooses to describe God, how God's people should look different. He says that we should do all things without grumbling or disputing. So what does that mean God's people look like? And Paul seems to suggest through the creed in 5 through 11 as well as this term um, that God's people should be marked by unity, humility, and love. Where else would we get that example than from Jesus himself, the Word made flesh? Christ is the perfect example of this. We see perfect unity in the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all having perfect unity in their decision to redeem sinful human beings through Jesus. Jesus is in perfect relationship and unity with the Father and Spirit. There is no grumbling or disputing within the triune God. We see perfect humility in Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 8 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our example of God becoming man for the sake of us. 
This should challenge us all in our humility. If the God of all the universe can take on humanity, why do we believe ourselves or our opinions are any better than our fellow brothers or sisters? And then finally, love. Jesus loved perfectly. As 1 John tells us, God is love. And God's love is on full display in this hymn as we see love as the motivating factor behind Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus' love for the Father and Jesus' love for his people. John 15 says that there is no greater love than for one to lay down their life for their friends. Jesus is our example of sacrificial love. And since we have the presence of God's power working in us and the example of Christ to follow, what is the result? It's that we're lights in a dark world. Paul calls the generation that they were in 2,000 years ago crooked and twisted. And I also think it is 100% safe to say that 21st century America is also crooked and twisted It's easy to look out at our world and say that it's worse than it's ever been. And things truly are bad in many ways. But hear this, our world that is fallen by sin and has been and will always be until the day of Christ crooked and twisted. Because people are crooked and twisted. But what has also always remained true is that God calls his people to be different. Paul here is echoing Jesus' own words in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all at the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and follow the example of Christ, we shine like a light in dark places. A beacon of hope for a lost world. Ambassadors in enemy territory for the kingdom of God. And then finally, what is the end result? Through the difficulties of sanctification and the trials of living in a dark world, what is the result of all of this? And Paul answers in this last section we are going to cover. Read with me. So in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is telling the church in Philippi and the church today that he is looking forward to the day of Christ's return. On the day of Christ's return, he will see that all of the work that he was a part of through the power of the Holy Spirit and the hardships that he endured were not in vain, but fully worth it and meaningful. The comparison that he makes to himself to a drink offering is kind of an interesting one here. And in the Old Testament sacrificial system, specifically in numbers, a drink offering was usually a small accompaniment of a much larger sacrifice. It was a small portion of a larger thing that kind of brought it to completion. Kind of like, and this, this is a stretch, but kind of like the cherry on like a Chick-fil-A milkshake. <laughs> we had Chick-fil-A last week, um, if you can tell. Um, 
It's not the substance of the cherry that makes the milkshake what it is, but it's a welcomed addition that brings it to completion. Paul is saying that his role of obedience is small and insignificant in comparison to the major work of the Holy Spirit and the people of Philippi, which is the pro- who is producing their faith. He is looking forward to seeing the work of God come to completion and thankful for the small part that God has allowed him to play in his providence. Friends, this is a humble and hopeful posture. This is a posture that we too, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can adopt. We are able to look forward to the day of Christ and rejoice in all that he is doing and will bring to completion. And we also can rejoice in the small role that God allows us to play in his plan. God is doing something in and through his people, the church, and we are graciously able to participate. And for that, we rejoice. We rejoice for when we will no longer feel the pain of the world, but the eternal rest of the Father. This is good news. And this makes the Christian life exciting. Knowing that God is doing something through his people and that he has invited us to participate and partner with him in the ministry that he's doing. Knowing that we are able to be poured out as drink offerings, a small part in the larger work that God has done and will bring to completion on the day of his return. Praise God for giving us this hope. And as we close this morning, I want to remind us of three truths and an application for us to ponder at the close of this year and the beginning of the next. Number one, the gospel should bring us to a place of reverence to God. God is perfectly good perfectly powerful and perfectly just and in his perfection chose to redeem his people by taking on flesh and dying for their sin this truth should rock us to our core and it should lead us to a place of worship to almighty god this posture of humbling ourselves before god is the fuel to our sanctification Our obedience and our devotion must start from a proper understanding of love and awe of God. And then number two, God is at work with his people, despite living in our crooked and twisted generation. We often feel that we are living in the darkest times in history. But I want to remind you that all of human history has been crooked and twisted and dark. Because people are. Our enemy and our sin have tried to destroy human dignity. And it's wreaked havoc on God's perfect world. But God is bigger than our enemy. And through his people is bringing his kingdom on earth in his perfect timing. Number three, we can rejoice in knowing that God is the author of all things. And that in his providence and goodness, he has allowed us to be a part of his plan. God has mercifully adopted us into his family and through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit is transforming us from the inside out into a people who look more and more and more like him. And in that, he has allowed us to play a part in his coming kingdom. And then fourth, friends, This year, rest in knowing that it is God who works in you. 
Only through the grace of the gospel are we able to respond to the gospel. If you have been working and toiling to earn favor with God and man, I want to encourage you to come to Jesus. Bring it all. Because he gives freely to those who repent and believe. And through the power of his spirit, he will transform you into his image. Rest this year knowing that God is the author of salvation, not you. Rest this year in knowing that God is who redeems and saves, not you. Rest in knowing that God does not choose based on our gifts or our goodness, but because it is for his good pleasure. He is faithful to his people. He has never and will never break his word. What God has begun, he will perfectly complete in his timing. Pray with me. Dear Father, thank you for this truth this morning. Lord, I pray that we as a church will humbly approach your throne, humbly approach the cross, Lord. Stop our toiling and give it to you, Lord. That we would repent and turn away from the sin that has enticed us but that has destroyed us. And Lord, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would slowly begin restoring us to look more and more and more like you. God, I pray that our church would look different amidst our generation. God, we know that there is evil in the world, but we also know that you have conquered and destroyed all evil through your finished work on the cross. God, let that truth be what brings us into this new year. Thank you for who you are, how you have loved us and chosen us and adopted us. And Lord, let us be marked by people who rest in your finished work.